Section three, fundamentals. Easy listening. The most important thing I look for in a musician is whether he knows how to listen. Duke Ellington. A good conversation is like a ping pong match. The ball moves back and forth rapidly with different spins and placement and strokes, but it's the same ball, and both players are fully engaged in the game, responding to what the other person has served them. A good conversation is similar. The game changes depending on what the other person does, and ideas go back and forth. A good improv scene works the same way: two or more or fewer players offering a back and forth of ideas and impulses, each guided by what the others are offering. It's so simple, and yet, look, we've all had a conversation where you could tell the other person wasn't listening to you because they wanted to say something. Super annoying. And we've probably all also been that person at one point too. And just like it happens in conversation, it can also happen on stage. We've all also seen improv scenes where other players try and drive a point of view or their particular idea. I mean, I've sure been guilty of ignoring something my partner says because I was so sure that my hilarious idea was so much better. You've probably done the same, and that's fine. We all make mistakes, and make no mistake about it. Ignoring your partner is a mistake. There are three main problems with doing this. Number one, it makes you an asshole. Ignoring the things your partner says and does in a scene, just as in real life, is an asshole move. Granted, when this happens, we're often not aware of it. We're just caught up in our own thoughts or have something we really want to say. Number two, the audience notices, maybe not consciously. But part of their awareness catches these moments, and their internal monologue says something like, "Didn't that person just say that they're adopted? So why is the other one still talking about the costume party?" And number three, the actual scene, the one you and your partner should be building together, is having the oxygen and possibility choked out of it. And here's the thing: your hilarious idea—it isn't real. Neither is the scene you and your partner are making up. The only real thing you have in a scene is the on-stage connection between you and your partner. Cutting off that connection is a shortcut to unfulfilling improv. But the opposite is also true. When players in a scene are keenly tuned into each other and taking on board and responding to the information, tone, and gestures of the other, a fun, free-flowing scene is the result every time. And to make it work, you don't have to do more. You just need to be. You need to take it easy. Letting go. When I play from my mind, I get in trouble. Stevie Ray Vaughan. There's often a moment before we let ourselves say or do something—a slight pause. It's the final check. We use this to avoid embarrassment. This impulse to check what we say gets hard-coded in. This is evolutionary adaptation at work. Saying dumb. Inappropriate or ill-thought-through things in a board meeting or at a party isn't helpful, but in improv, it's pure gold. The thing is, when we assess our ideas as they come up, we start to necessarily slow down. Then, as we judge, we may start doubting our ideas. We may look for something funnier, smarter, better, or more original. It may also happen with our partner's idea. Maybe we think their idea isn't quite the great one that will really make the scene so good, so we avoid committing.
we wait or demur and hope something better presents itself. And very quickly we're in a cycle of examining or avoiding ideas until eventually, finally, some offer gains traction. The problem is, the longer you ignore or evaluate and discard the ideas that are presenting themselves, the more likely it is that when you land upon something, it won't feel right, and the resulting scene will feel unfulfilling. Listen to that scene. Here's where take it easy comes in. Fuck all those questions and concerns. Be wholly uncritical. Commit yourself to what you and your scene partner are doing in the moment, in every moment, and the scene will be discovered. It will present itself. The scene will be what it wants to be if you let it. Now, that's not to say that there's only one possibility for what a scene could be. There are infinite shades and directions, but they all need to relate to and be rooted in the offers that have come before. Whichever direction you choose based on what your scene partner is giving you, that will take you somewhere cool, I promise. The problem is, the signs can be subtle. A simple hand gesture, a facial expression, a hesitation. Anything could be the thread that will take you into the story. These offers can be hard to spot, especially if you're not paying attention. But if you are, you can just follow that idea and the scene will unfold as if on its own. The difference between searching for an idea and following the natural thread is the difference between surfing on a wave and splashing around in it and possibly drowning. Love your mistakes. The man who makes no mistakes does not usually make anything. William Connor McGee When I started improvising, I messed up a lot. Everybody does when learning something new. And at first that would frustrate me because I wanted to do it better and not make any mistakes. But when I started understanding how mistakes work and the good that can come from them, on stage at least, I changed. I got better by embracing my failures. And I've also gotten better at applying those on-stage insights to my real life. Improv Mistakes I took an improv workshop with Keith Johnstone once many years ago. One piece of advice he shared really stuck with me. He said, Try, make mistakes, fail big, and fail happily. If the audience sees you unbothered by your mistakes, then they can enjoy them too. But if they see that you feel humiliated and ashamed, they will be uncomfortable. And it works, generally. The audience loves mistakes when you do too. Whether it's walking into a scene at an awkward moment, failing at a game, or having a mobile phone ring in the audience, it, well, it doesn't matter what the issue is. The audience loves it if you deal with it confidently and comfortably. And by confident, I mean humbly and happily. And perhaps paradoxically, they'll enjoy it even more than if your whole show runs smoothly and slickly. And there's a very good reason for this. When things don't go as planned, the tension ramps up for performers and the audience. It is, all of a sudden, very real. They know you're not playing a stock character or idly bantering. Now the intensity is heightened and everyone is sucked into the moment. Since improv is about being in the moment, this is exactly what you're going for. So when something slips up, the autopilot switches off and everybody should Focus on that mistake. Don't gloss over it. Explore it. Find out why it happened and how it can help. There's lots of fun to be had in playing with these unexpected slip-ups and lots of awkward disappointment in opting not to deal with them. 
I've made lots of mistakes on stage and felt awkward and embarrassed. And then, so did the audience. But when I've made mistakes myself and stepped into them gloriously, all kinds of exciting and unexpected things have happened. Once, I was playing the short-form game Pearls on a String, where players come in one at a time with initially unrelated phrases the later players weave together. When it goes well, by the end of the piece, a whole story has emerged from the various fragments. On this occasion, I decided that, rather than thinking how to play off the offers that had come before, which felt to me like planning, I would just come on totally blank and say whatever popped the hell out of my damn mouth. As it turned out, my subconscious had latched onto the last thing I heard, so my contribution was basically repeating the idea my predecessor had come up with. It made no sense whatsoever, and everyone on stage just turned and looked at me like, what the fuck? And this was in front of a crowd of about 200 people at a raucous late-night Boom Chicago show. The audience was also super confused. It ground the whole thing to a dead stop. I was mortified and unable to use that mortification for anything. So the game was doomed from that moment forward. Had I smacked my forehead and stepped back out of line or, or just faked my own death or sat down and shook my head when it was my turn or something, it could have become interesting. If I'd only acknowledged my screw-up gracefully, everyone could have had a laugh at my clownish expense and onward we go. But that's not what happened. Instead, the exercise just limped to an awkward conclusion. There's a footnote here, footnote two. Uh, a colleague did, in this occasion, valiantly attempt to make my screw-up part of the overall story, and he just about succeeded, but not entirely. Here's a positive example. During a solo improv set, I forgot the name of one of the characters I was speaking to, this guy who was running a marina, and so the character I was playing became the kind of yacht-owning jerk who didn't care about the names of his underlings who worked for him. And that screw-up led to the discovery that that character was an asshole, and that was a very fun thing that we got to play with during the set, and the scene gained momentum, and the characters gained more depth. Now, that's not to say that forgetting character names is a good idea, it's generally not, but what I mean is any mistake can become fuel for the scene if you accept it and enjoy it. Trying to be funny, trying to be anything. The less effort, the faster and more powerful you will be. So says Bruce Lee. Don't try to be funny is something improv teachers often tell beginners. And there's a good reason for that. And it's not because your teacher prefers unfunny improv. It's that trying to be funny rarely, if ever, results in great comedy. I'm not talking about trying in the sense of dedicating yourself to your craft and honing your comedic voice. That's important, especially if you're studying improv as a way to advance a career in comedy. But in the moment, especially as a beginner, spending time in your head trying to think up a funny thing instead of just saying the thing you're already thinking of is a bad way to go for a few reasons. One, it means you're thinking and planning instead of listening to your partner. Two, it slows down your scene. Three, it instills a habit of second-guessing yourself. And four, it's rarely worth the effort, laugh-wise. The most counterproductive thing is that people will freeze up because they think the thing they're going to say isn't funny, so they don't do anything. This doesn't help, at all. It slows the scene down, and it knocks the performers out of the present scene. Having the mindset of, I need to be funny, especially at the beginning of an improv journey, rarely, if ever, 
results in achieving that goal. More often, it acts as an obstacle standing between the students and good scenes filled with genuinely funny moments. If you trust yourself and let go of the need to try and be funny, you'll be so much better off. The key is to let down your guard, abandon your expectations, and instead, focus on being present at all times. Once that happens, you'll actually find laughs arriving. Genuine responses will elicit positive audience feedback, and once this process is in place, you can then certainly start making the funny more funny. By letting go of the trying, the pressure comes off, and you can focus on staying present and having fun. This is how finding the funny fits into the take it easy ethos. It's like a Zen koan. Only through not being funny will you be able to find the real funny. End of chapter. The problem with yes and. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. Charles Swindle. Yes and is the piece of advice most easily and frequently dispensed about improv. The idea is that any line of dialogue or idea offered by any player is immediately accepted, yes, and immediately built upon, and. If a player says, hey Hal, it's a beautiful day for bird watching, their partner would not deny that offer. We're actually at a bakery making pretzels bird watching, you're a crazy person. Instead, they would respond with something that accepts and builds on the bird-watching idea. For example, I need to see three more goldfinches to break my personal record. Or, after this we can go to the movies, right, Dad? Or, are you kidding me? Beautiful day, it's like minus eight out here. All of these notions accept the original idea and add more information to help build the relationship and the world. Yes and binds improvisers together. It's not just used on stage. Plus, it's a useful shorthand to explain how improv works to the uninitiated and a tidy guide rail for early scenes, and indeed scenes further down the line as well. At a wedding in Texas a couple years ago, I was speaking to a member of the bride's family who lived in New York. The woman asked me what I did, and I told her, I'm an improviser. She replied, yes, and? Ouch. It was one of the sharpest pieces of cocktail conversation I've ever been on the receiving end of. She showed that she understood enough about my world to make a snappy joke, one that fits so deftly into the context of conversation that an untrained ear might not pick up on it. And, whether intentional or not, she reminded me that very, very few people are just improvisers. Most of us either do it as a hobby, or, if we do it professionally, we must do other things too, be it writing code, waiting tables, running a theater, teaching improv, or making hats. Because of all the wonderful things improv is, and it is most certainly many wonderful things, providing a stable income for grown-ass people to subsist on is not one of its strong points. But I digress somewhat. The issue here is that yes and is often thought to mean adding things to a situation. While that's true, it's not the whole story. Only applying part of the principle can lead to sloppy and uninteresting work. For example, let's say a player says to another, Hey Marjorie, I love your hair. Marjorie, who now knows her name, can respond with, Thanks Jan, that Salvatore is a master. This creates agreement on the reality and the circumstances, and the scene can now move forward. 
This is a perfectly suitable illustration of yes and. However, if they continue yes anding, we can end up with something like the following. Hey Marjorie, I like your hair. Thanks Diane, it goes really well with my brand new dress. Oh, you got a new dress for the fireman's ball tonight. Yes, I hope Reggie is there. He's so handsome. Did you hear that he got a new tattoo of a dragon on his back? Oh my god, what a rebel. I hope he rides his motorbike. Motorbikes are so dangerous. My uncle broke his leg riding a motorbike in Morocco. They could go on like this forever, never arriving at anything particularly interesting. It conforms to the letter of the law of yes and, but not the spirit. That's why absorbing info and responding is just as, if not more, important than simply yes anding. The other pitfall of yes and is that it can train us to never say no. And saying no is totally fine. Marjorie, for example, could feel that her hair doesn't in fact look good. That can add some character information and suggest some context for the relationship too. Marjorie could respond, ah, you're just saying that, it looks like a dirty paintbrush. Now the scene goes in a different direction. Perhaps she's annoyed by Jan's fake compliments, or her neediness compels her to extract even more elaborate compliments. Maybe she just hacked it off with a bread knife because she needs to hide from the police. The point is, she doesn't need to automatically accept her friend's compliment. She just needs to respond in an honest way for her character and not be in robotic yes-and mode. A character saying no can add variation to your improv show, which, if used appropriately, can contrast all the general agreement quite nicely. It adds another layer to the cake, gives another note to the song. But they don't yield very good results at the beginning of an improv journey. When I'm teaching absolute beginners, I tell them they can't ever say no. There's a no-nos rule. And this might seem harsh, but I don't care. I will shut a scene down for a no. This is because early improv training is largely about getting used to agreement, to associating, to building realities in a collaborative way. Once we're used to doing this without thinking, we can play with the other options. At the beginning, though, a no is almost always coming as the easiest way to block another's ideas and thus prevent anything happening that's outside the player's control. The thing is, outside the player's control is exactly where we want to be. Now, the second place yes and gets us into trouble is when we keep piling information into a scene thinking, we're yes anding because, well, technically we are. But in actual fact, we're just plowing more information into a scene and bogging it down. The example seen above shows what can happen if this approach gets out of control. Think of yes and as the grease of a scene. You need the scene to be greased up to get the pistons moving, and the pistons need to keep firing, but if you keep piling more yes and in, the works can get all gummed up. If you say yes and in your mind, and then add in something tangentially related, you end up with a whole mess of empty promises to the audience. Here's the thing. Yes and is a device, and we use it to create a shared reality. But it is not just a free association on the last thing your partner said. That's the end of the chapter. <laughs>